Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it's hard to understand how journalists can report Donald Trump's repeated claim that the U.S. should do less coronavirus testing because, quote, with smaller testing, we would show fewer cases, close quote, without following up with, and that's why we're calling for his resignation. Trump's bizarre delusions on COVID-19 aren't just bats in his attic. They've driven a response that is nothing short of disastrous. He's backing up the no-test-no-disease fallacy, for instance, by cutting funding for testing sites around the country, a move that, Talking Points Memo reports, local officials met with a, quote, mixture of frustration, resignation, and horror, close quote. We'll get an update on the preventable COVID nightmare and U.S. media's approach to it from FAIR editor Jim Narikas. Also on the show, as public protests against racist police violence grow, so too does law enforcement's capacity to criminalize that protest, including with the use of tools like facial recognition technology, which is almost certainly more prevalent and more meaningful to you than you realize. Police have access to millions of images from social media, from cameras on the street, from driver's licenses, but little transparency about how they're using those images and few rules for how they should. We'll talk about that with Claire Garvey, Senior Associate with the Center for Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. AP reports hospitalizations and caseloads from the novel coronavirus rising to new highs in several U.S. states. In some places, new cases more than doubled. Only the truly selective listener can avoid accepting that this country's abject mismanagement and failure of leadership continue to lead to thousands and thousands of avoidable deaths and illnesses. But the U.S. is still pushing to reopen because the people most likely to be harmed have less political clout than those who can more comfortably avoid hazards. It's a kind of nightmare playing out in broad daylight. But have corporate media given up on doing more than charting it? How else could they meaningfully intervene? For an update on the pandemic and media's coverage of it, we're joined now in studio by FAIR's editor, Jim Narikas. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jim Narikas. Thanks for having me back on. Well, I think if you just landed from space and skimmed the news media, you'd see places in the country described as in various phases of reopening. And you would think that though there might be disagreement about it, the U.S. had essentially weathered the worst and was moving cautiously toward recovery. For those who can't bring themselves to look at the latest information or who are frankly confused by it, where is the U.S. right now in terms of beating back the pandemic compared to other places in the world? It is very striking when you look at the course of the coronavirus in the United States and you compare it to what's going on, particularly in other wealthy countries that have the same kind of resources that the United States has, 
the contrast between the countries that have brought the spread of coronavirus virtually to a halt and the United States, where after a, a slight drop from the worst spread in April down to kind of a plateau of you know, maybe two-thirds of what we were, we're seeing, it's now headed sharply back up. And we will soon, barring some reversal of fortune, be passing up the heights that we reached before, be on a, a uncharted territory of levels of this pandemic. It's just incredible when you see just the images of the trajectory, you know, the line in the U.S. going up and up compared to other countries. It's, it's frankly um, heartbreaking and infuriating. It really does call into question the whole model of U.S. media, which is based on this idea that everyone should be able to read the newspaper and think, well, that's pretty much the way I see the world. And when you have a political party that is in power taking the position that uh, deadly danger is not really so dangerous, and in fact will will fade away without us doing anything about it, to produce news that will allow people with that worldview to say, well, yeah, this is speaking for me. This is covering the, the world as I see it. You know, to try to mesh that kind of denial into a, a realistic view of a, a serious deadly problem facing the nation, it inevitably produces just confusion and a completely incomprehensible picture of, of what's going on that is the, the basis for people saying, well, I think that uh, we've got this pretty much under control now and are ready to go about business more or less as usual. That is the kind of spike that we're seeing is the direct consequence of that kind of approach. Well, when you were here last month, you were taking issue with New York Times reporting on Sweden as having had apparent success without anything so extreme as a lockdown. Their experience would seem to argue for less caution, not more, said that Times piece by Thomas Erdbrink and Christina Anderson. What's the latest there? We have looked at Sweden a, a couple times at FAIR because it has been offered as this sort of alternative approach to the coronavirus that really you don't have to take it so seriously and can let it run its course and eventually you'll be immune you'll have herd immunity this is never uh, never borne out by the numbers you know when people were, were saying look how well sweden has done sweden had not done well at all uh i believe it, when we wrote the the first piece on it it had the the 10th highest per capita death toll in the world and compared to its neighbors was just looking terrible and now the, the latest piece that, that we saw in the New York Times was about how the other Scandinavian countries, Norway, Denmark, Finland, are not letting people from Sweden into their country. And it's because those countries have basically halted coronavirus and are now able to resume life more or less as usual, you know, while being careful to, to look for the stray outbreaks. Whereas Sweden, it's still, you know, running rampant. And the same writer, Thomas Erbrink, from the New York Times was writing now about Sweden being shut out of the other countries. And he really made it sound like this had a lot to do with the resentment that other Scandinavian countries feel towards the success of Sweden. And they, he cited IKEA and Volvo and ABBA as reasons why they are so jealous. And, and really took seriously this idea that, that it, it's not the fact that, you know, in the case of, of Finland, 
they have one one hundredth of the amount of, of new infections as Sweden. I think the, the closest is Denmark has, has one twelfth of the infections of Sweden. And the idea that you would, after you've painstakingly driven out this disease uh, at you know considerable cost, uh, that you would let people from a country that has really not taken the disease seriously at all to just wander into your country and, and start new outbreaks is kind of crazy. But for the New York Times, the reporter who had been touting Sweden as a model seemed unwilling to acknowledge just how crazy it would be to let a country that had followed this model wander around your, your country without restriction. Yeah. Surely it must just be that ABBA resentment that is that is uh, driving that, that conflict. Well, that earlier Times piece described Swedes as laughing and basking in freedoms considered normal in most parts of the world not long ago. And it's obvious that some politicians and pundits here think that laughing and basking in freedom is the cure for, you know, whatever ails. But it seems like the EU restrictions that we've just seen on travel from the United States, that's got to throw some kind of cold water on this magical thinking. I mean, doesn't it? Our relationship to the European Union is, is very much like the relationship of, of Sweden to the, to the other Scandinavian countries. Uh, while we have been acting like, you know, we've done a good enough job on the coronavirus and now can get back to what we were doing before, other countries have really taken seriously the fact that they have this deadly pandemic going on and have brought the spread down to, um, you know, I, I don't think any European country has eliminated it, but they have very much the new cases down to a, a trickle. Europe is talking about letting international travel resume, and they're making lists of the countries that can and can't send their people to, to the European Union. And according to the New York Times, it, it looks like the, the United States is definitely going to be on the, the do not visit list, which, again, it, it would be nonsensical to have put the effort into controlling this virus and then let people from a, a place that has not made a real effort to control it into your country because a substantial number of people in the United States are carrying this virus and would spread it to their European destinations. Well, the pandemic and anti-police violence protests are obviously the mega stories of the day, and they do intersect. Um, it's kind of been kind of a thing going around that we've been hearing about. What do you think we should know about the notion of marches and demonstrations as potential virus spreaders? You do see a lot of people have been talking about how dangerous it is to protest and how this is going to inevitably result in a spike in cases. And it really hasn't. When you look at places like New York, like Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, the District of Columbia, where there have been a lot of protests, you have not seen a corresponding spike in infections. The places where you have seen big spikes are largely in the South and West, where places have declared it was time to, to resume normal business operations. I really think that people underestimate the distinction between outdoor and indoor activities and activities with masks and without masks. Those really do make a huge difference in terms of the, of the danger of spreading the, the disease. And also the fact that the number of people involved in an activity makes a great deal of difference. If you're talking about something that a few percent of the population is doing, it's always going to have a much smaller impact on the trajectory of the infection than something that most of the population is doing. But when you see people doing something 
that you don't like, there's a tendency to think, oh, well, that's a, a thing that they shouldn't be doing anyway. If there's any risk at all, it's too much risk. And people really need to be thinking more probabilistically. Are you really increasing your chances of, of spreading the virus compared to what you would be doing in your everyday life and how many people are doing it? Which is why I think the, the most dangerous thing that people can be doing is going back to work because it's generally done indoors. Most places it's done without masks. And it's something that you do eight hours a day, five days a week. And it has the potential to really create a huge spike in cases of COVID if we stop you know, working remotely and, and start congregating in offices again. Though the, there was an interesting study that came out talking about the economic impact of uh, the coronavirus and noting that the people who are hardest hit by this are poor people whose jobs very seldom allow them to work from home, and particularly poor people who work in rich neighborhoods because the rich people are able to isolate, are taking this disease seriously and not going out to the places they would have been going out. Uh, and so the, the much poorer people who work in those places are economically very badly hit. Well, finally, I incline toward the skeptical, but I kind of balked at the New York Times interactive feature that they had up on June 25th, not the content of the feature itself, but the headline, How the Virus Won. There's certainly been a, a, just a tragedy of missed opportunities, but it can't be that there's nothing we can do now or that media could do now. There is this assumption that, as Ned Flanders' parents said, we've tried nothing, we're all out of ideas. The decision to not have a serious national strategy to combat the coronavirus, that was a choice. Uh, we decided that we were not going to do what it took to actually stop it and uh, instead try to mitigate the, the spread of it uh, by you know, sort of slow down the spread of it so it doesn't overwhelm our, our healthcare system. If you don't stop the virus, it will eventually spread to the, the virtually the entire population. You know, people think that, that 70, 80 percent of, of people will get infected. The disease has something like a, a 0.5 to 1 percent fatality rate. When you do the math, you are talking about millions of people in the United States alone dying from the coronavirus. That is the implication of a strategy that does not try to stop the virus. And I think we've never had an actual conversation about whether a seven-figure death toll is something that we are willing to accept or not. We've been speaking with Jim Narikas. He's the editor at FAIR.org. Jim Narikas, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me on. Robert Williams, an African-American man in Detroit, was falsely arrested when an algorithm declared his face a match with security footage of a watch store robbery. Boston City Council voted this week to ban the city's use of facial recognition technology, part of an effort to move resources from law enforcement to community, but also out of concern about dangerous mistakes like that in Williams' case, along with questions about what the technology means for privacy and free speech. As more and more people go out in the streets in protest, 
What should we know about this powerful tool and the rules, or lack thereof, governing its use? Claire Garvey is a senior associate with the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law, lead author of a series of reports on facial recognition, including last year's America Under Watch, Face Surveillance in the United States. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Claire Garvey. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I would like to ask first for a sense of the prevalence of face recognition technology and who is affected. People might imagine that it's a tool like fingerprinting that police sometimes use to catch criminals. But then I read in the center's earlier report, evocatively titled The Perpetual Lineup, that one in two American adults is in a law enforcement face recognition network. How can that be? What does that mean? That's right. Face recognition use by police in the United States is very, very common. Over half of all American adults are in a database that's used for criminal investigations thanks to getting a driver's license. Robert Williams was not identified through a former mugshot. He was identified through his driver's license, which most of us have. In addition, we estimate conservatively that over a quarter of all 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country have access to use face recognition. The most concerning feature is that there are few, if any, rules governing how this technology can, or more importantly, cannot be used. Well, when you say Williams was identified through a driver's license, you mean, in other words, it's not, we think of someone going through mugshots, you know, a crime has been committed, and you you go through mugshots to see if you can find someone. But this is really, I mean, we really all are in a lineup, potentially all the time, if police are using databases of things like driver's licenses to match with. That's right. Generally speaking, if you haven't committed a crime or had interaction with law enforcement, you're not in a fingerprint database that's searched on a routine basis in criminal investigations. You're certainly not in a DNA database that's searched for criminal investigations. And yet, thanks to the development of face recognition technology and the prevalence of face photographs on file in government databases, chances are better than not you are in a face recognition database that is searched by the FBI or your state or local police or accessible to them for investigations of any number of types of crime. Well, and to say that the technology and its use is not perfect, I mean, law enforcement can search for matches based on a pencil drawing or based on a picture of a celebrity or a photoshopped picture. I I found that very interesting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about so-called probe photos. It's very odd. So face recognition, very simply, is the ability of law enforcement or whoever else has a system to take a photo or a sketch or something else depicting an unknown individual and compare it against the database of known individuals, typically mugshots, but also driver's licenses. In many jurisdictions, we have found that those probe photos are not limited to photographs. They mostly are, and those are from social media, those are from cell phone photos or videos, those can be from surveillance cameras, but in some jurisdictions, those are also forensic sketches, artist renderings of what a witness describes a person looking like, or forensic busts 
created by a lab. Or in the instance of the NYPD, in at least two cases, officers used what they called celebrity lookalikes, somebody, a celebrity who they thought the suspect looked like to search for the identity of the suspect. This will fail. Biometrics are unique to an individual. You can't substitute someone else's biometrics for your own. That just goes against the, the rules of biometrics. You also can't put in a sketch of a biometric. A sketch of a fingerprint sounds ridiculous. But you can't put a sketch of a face in and expect to get a reliable result. And yet despite this, companies themselves who are selling this tool do advocate in some instances for the use of this type of probe photo of sketches. They say that that is a permissible use of their technology, despite the fact that it will overwhelmingly fail. Well, and the technology being especially bad for black people, that's not just anecdote. There's something very real there as well. Right. Studies of face recognition accuracy continue to show that the technology performs differently depending on what you look like, depending on your race, sex, and age, with many algorithms having a particularly tough time with darker skin tones. Pair that with the fact that face recognition will be disproportionately deployed on communities of color. And if it's running on mugshot databases, face recognition systems will disproportionately be running on databases of particularly young black men. In San Diego, for example, a study of how the city used license plate readers and face recognition found that the city deployed those tools up to two and a half times more on communities of color than the population of San Diego, showing that these tools are focused on precisely the people that they will probably perform the least accurately on. Well, the power is obvious of this tool and the potential for misuse. So, so what about accountability, you started to say? How would you describe the state at the federal or local level or wherever, the state of laws or regulations or guidelines around the use of face recognition? The laws have not kept up with the deployment of face recognition. As it stands now, a handful of jurisdictions have passed bans on the use of the technology, most recently yesterday in Boston. That was following San Francisco, Oakland, and a couple of other jurisdictions in California and Massachusetts. But for a vast majority of the country, there are no laws that comprehensively regulate how this technology can and cannot be used. And as a consequence, it's up to police departments to make those determinations, often with a complete absence of transparency or input from the communities that they are policing. Well, finally, let's talk about the story of the day. We've read about the FBI combing through the social media of protesters and charging them under the Anti-Riot Act. The FBI also flying a Cessna Citation, a highly advanced spy plane, infrared thermal imaging, flying that over Black Lives Matter protests. Where does this surveillance technology intersect with the right to protest? What are the conflicts that you see there? Face recognition risks chilling our ability to participate in free speech, free assembly, and protest. Police departments themselves acknowledged that. Back in 2011, there was a privacy impact assessment written by a bunch of various law enforcement agencies that said face recognition, particularly used on driver's license photos, has the ability to 
chill speech cause people to alter their behavior in public, leading to self-censorship and inhibition, basically preventing people from participating or exercising their First Amendment rights. Face recognition is a tool of biometric surveillance. And if it's used on protests, it will chill people's rights to participate in that type of behavior. And it's particularly critical in a moment where we are protesting police brutality and over-surveillance and the over-militarization of police to take into account how advanced technologies like face recognition play into historical injustices and over-surveilling of communities of color. Face recognition and other advanced technologies must be part of the discussion around scaling back where law enforcement agencies are systems of oppression and of marginalization. Well, how can we protect ourselves and one another? We do want to keep going out in the street, but what maybe should we be mindful of? We should be mindful that any photograph or video taken at a protest and published, put online, can be used to identify the people who are caught on camera. So I urge anyone taking photos and videos to keep taking those photos and videos, but train the photos on police, train the videos, train your cameras on the police, to the extent possible, blur faces, especially if you think you're in a jurisdiction that will use face recognition to identify and then go after protesters. Help us keep the anonymity of these protesters in the world where face recognition does make any photograph into a potential identification tool. It's really important for all of us to be aware of that. While it shouldn't be this way, we should have rules that protect us. We don't at the moment, but we have to be proactive in protecting the identities of the people that show up on the other side of our camera. We've been speaking with Claire Garvey, Senior Associate with the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. You can find them online at law.georgetown.edu. Claire Garvey, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me on. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter called Extra and our Action Alert Network. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.